Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We love our dogs and cats, but their behavior can be baffling. Maybe they're thinking the same thing about us. Today on Access Utah, my guest is veterinarian Gary Weitzman. He's president and CEO of the San Diego Humane Society and SPCA. He's author of How to Speak Cat, a guide to decoding cat language. It's published by National Geographic. Dr. Weitzman is also author of How to Speak Dog and Everything Dogs. We're going to answer your dog and cat questions. Maybe have a more exotic animal. Uh, perhaps Dr. Weitzman could accommodate uh, answer to a question on your animal. Our email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. I already have a couple of questions by email. We'll get to those shortly. You can join us on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio, and we'd love to see a picture of your pet on our Facebook page, Utah Public Radio. Uh, Dr. Weitzman uh, at the uh, San Diego Humane Society is involved in a uh, current ambitious effort called Getting to Zero, a comprehensive plan to save the life of every healthy and treatable animal in the San Diego Animal Welfare Coalition shelters. We'll talk about that as well. Dr. Weitzman, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Tom. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Appreciate you taking the time to uh, be with us. You have an interesting uh, biography. I'm uh, finding this on the San Diego Humane Society uh, website. Um, but, uh, you uh, served in the Air Force. Right, reading? right, yeah. Um, I don't know. It's uh, there's <laughs> there's a lot of things to do in life. Yeah. <laughs> so I've tried to hit a few of them. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I really, uh, I really did enjoy and uh, was really happy to be uh, a part of the active duty Air Force. And then uh, went on to, uh, to get your degrees. You have a Bachelor of Arts degree, Biology and English from Colby College, Master's in Public Health degree, International Health from Boston University School of Public Health, and Doctor of Veterinary Medicine from uh, uh, Tufts University School of Veterinary Medicine. And uh, before you were in San Diego, I noticed you were CEO of Washington Animal Rescue League, where uh, you were involved in uh, that organization being a national resource for disaster and puppy mill rescues. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, uh, out in our nation's capital. So uh, I want to get to all of that and, and this very ambitious effort, very uh, laudable effort, uh, getting to zero. But uh, first, I want to jump into uh, dog and cat behavior. These uh, these books are very attractive books from National Geographic, kind of geared toward kids. But I I was learning a lot as I was leafing through this this how to speak cat. What's the what's the what's the goal here? Yeah, you know, actually, you're right. It was uh, primarily uh, part of the uh, children's book program for National Geographic when we started it and found out from How to Speak Dog that it actually had a much wider audience than that. And as a matter of fact, um, I've got about 400 people here at my uh, animal shelter in San Diego who I, <laughs> you know, you use them uh, is to get uh, all the expert advice in the world. And it actually became something that was really interesting to our shelter staff. Well, you know, they're all adults. And then when the books were published, they actually had a broader audience than just the kids. So parents, um, anybody of any age, if you're interested in dogs and cats, they're actually, I hope, hope very helpful. And, uh, of course, we have these stereotypes, uh, cats versus dogs. Um, you know, you own dogs and your cats own you. That's kind of one of those right, things. Right, um, yeah, or, or to cats, your staff, something your like staff, that. We, we tried right. to break down some of those stereotypes, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. And you have uh, page 13 on how to speak cat. You have cats versus dogs, and, you, you, you know, you're going through... Uh, uh, cats demand to be paid. Dogs will work for praise. Those are that's just one example. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and it's all you know. M- much of it is in in that kind of a format is is tongue in cheek. But it is what we think about cats. And you know, the really the fact of the matter is, and we say this all the time, cats are not small dogs. They're very very different. But there are similarities as well. So you know, hopefully we can decode some of that. Now, now does this does those stereotypes uh, extend to the to the pet owners? To the oh, pet, pet boy, you're going to get me in trouble now, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, actually, I, I don't really think so. You know, for some people, it's easier to have a cat than a dog, just because cats are much more independent and not as reliant on us. But they are very reliant anyway. So, you know, we have all sorts of people. We've got, you know, we have thousands and thousands of people that we see on a yearly basis at any shelter. And it's a whole mix of people for both. But, you know, you can always play the stereotype game. <laughs> And there's certainly sometimes it does fit. Mm. Well, by the way, before we jump into some of this uh, advice, and we have, uh, as I mentioned, a couple of emails already, uh, you can get your question in. Hope that you will at 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio, and we'd love to see a picture of your pet as well on our Facebook page. Uh, maybe you could take us through some best practices, advice for adopting a pet. The new shelters, you know, always encourage, I'm sure, San Diego Shelters encourage people to come down, uh, adopt a pet. What's uh, what's oh, the yeah. th- things to look for? Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, definitely. There's so many animals in the United States that are in need of homes in, in our nation's uh, shelter systems. And we really do want people to at least think shelter first or a rescue group or, you know, d- go and find an animal that needs you. Um, but that's not to say there's anything at all wrong with finding a good, responsible breeder if you have a particular animal in mind. But most shelters, like San Diego, shelters in Utah, have a lot of purebred dogs and cats at their shelter. I think we've got a handful of Siamese here, a couple of Persians as well. But the real key is if you decide to go to a shelter, go to one and have a good, thorough interview with the adoption counselor. You know, you can go in with with your ideas of what you like, but you might leave with something else. And often we can help you find the animal that is a really great fit for your family. And it may not at all be who you thought you were coming in to see. Hmm. How much time should you spend with the animal before you before you before take adopting? Home? Well, you know, actually, that's a really good question. You really can't spend as much valuable time as you need to in a shelter environment to, to get with a to meet the dog or cat that you want to bring home. That animal will be very different when you actually get him or her into a home. So we'd like people to fall in love. But, you know, sometimes that can take time, just as with people. And, you know, here in San Diego, we have an adoption guarantee. If you didn't fall in love, we will find you someone else to fall in love with, and we will find someone that will fall in love with whoever you brought home that didn't quite work out. We really want it to be a, a really good match because, you know, for heaven's sakes, it's, it's 10, 15, 20 years in some cats, and certainly we want to get dogs up to that level too. It has to be, it's really a very a lifelong commitment for that animal. But you know what? When you go into a shelter, don't feel rushed. You can spend all the time that you want and meet that animal, go out to agility yards, play with the animal, uh, you know, we have uh, getting to know your rooms, all of those sorts of things. And you do need time because it's, it's a very serious decision. Hmm. I imagine some people are looking for a specific breed. Some people just want a companion, right? It's, it's, it just depends on people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I think even those of us who say we love dogs and cats and any dog and cat will do, you know, we grew up with something. You know, we, we think that there's something in our heads that says, I really want a German Shepherd, even though I know that when I grew up, that German Shepherd was a shedding machine <laughs> the whole time that I had him. And actually, actually, Tom, I've got a Shepherd now who I'm totally in love with, so I can use that that um, example with abandon. But yeah, I mean, you could have, a, you, certainly we all have an attachment to a specific look or a feel of a dog or a cat. But you know what? That doesn't mean that when you go in and you look at animals in their, in their environments at a shelter, you don't fall in love with something completely different and unexpected. Here's the first question up. This is from Shalane and Logan, uh, who says, I would like to know what the silent meow means. My cats do this all the time. It's adorable. So that'd be the first uh, question, silent meow. Okay. Yeah, you know what? It depends, seriously, on the cat. A lot of cats will do that without actually having any universal meaning to it. It's really just to get your attention. But sometimes a meow that doesn't really have any audible quality to it is really the same as a regular meow. It's just they're not putting as much throat into it, I suppose you could say. But the interesting thing that we note in the book is that adult cats, for the most part, only vocalized to humans. So it really is a gesture of affection and acceptance. Okay, and I'll just, you know, pull the gloves off here. It's also that I want something when you're a cat making that noise. But, you know, it's amazing. Kittens will vocalize with each other, but adult cats will only vocalize to their humans. So it's really an acceptance gesture. And if a cat does that to you, it's it's should be you should be very very flattered. So I think Jelaine has a really good bond with, uh, with that cat to have that vocalization happen, even if you can't hear it. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. That, that adults will only vocalize to humans. Yeah, yeah. And actually, if you're ever outdoors and you happen to be near a feral cat colony, of course, it's not like going to a zoo where you'll see all the animals out, but there can be a lot of cats. And a lot of our urban environments, that's our biggest challenge right now. You actually won't hear a, won't hear a sound because they don't make any noise to each other. You might hear kittens, and heaven forbid, you know, but for kittens to be raised outside like that. But you won't hear the adults making any noise. They only make that noise when they're in a home with us hmm. and only to us. Shalene goes on, uh, she says, also, my two cats have been around each other for nearly nine months now, and they still hiss quite often. Oh, no. They don't have (laughs) physical fights. They usually, one minute later, they're hanging out as if they aren't even angry with each other. Why are they still hissing, she says. What does it mean? Oh, I feel much better. Um, you know, that's actually the tragedy most of the time. We want our animals to have company, the company of their own species, so dogs or cats. But the real sad part is that a lot of cats, and for the most part, cats don't really 
want other cats around. They're not the most social species with each other. So people, it breaks my heart because people always want to bring another cat home to their current home, their current cat at home. And it's, it's, it's challenging. You know, most of the time you can get cats to eventually get along, but, uh, well, I don't even want to say most of the time, but often you can't, and you can't convince them to do it. So if her cats are now just hissing at each other, they're only warning and talking to each other. There's absolutely nothing to be afraid of or worried about. If they get along most of the time afterward, she's doing great. That's actually a really good outcome. So what, what if it doesn't work out? Yeah. yeah, and that happens um, more frequently than I like to say. Well, we ask people to give it a try for two months and to, to try to do it slowly. And the, slow, the slowly part is kind of challenging. You know, you keep the animals separated, make sure everybody has a safe space to retreat to, some vertical climbing areas so that they don't always have to be on the same horizontal plane. You know, you try to start feeding them separately and pull the bowls together, all those things. And you know what? It's really um, a, a question of the best laid plans because it's really up to the cats. When they don't get along, sometimes the heartbreaking decision is that you have to separate them. And whether you do that by different floors or you return that cat to, hopefully you give that cat to a friend or a family member, but clear that through your shelter because we like to know where the animals end up. But um, sometimes you just can't. And it's about quality of life. And if the two animals don't get along, don't want them or you to have a miserable experience for 15 years. So I have a question about a cat that I visit. This is a cat that my sister and her family own. Um, he likes. Oh, does the cat like you? He he does. It seems like me. Oh, good. He he gets on my lap. He gets his face up close to mine, and and he he just seems to stare at me. What's <laughs> okay. does he want something? That's a, that's a little off-putting, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of cute, but it's also a little off-putting. Yes. Yeah, actually, it's another acceptance gesture. So a cat getting that close to you, first of all, you know, they actually experience the world very differently than we do, like dogs do. But um, to a different extent, cat's vision is not as good as dog's vision, which is surprising to most people. Their night vision is much better. So sometimes it's a little bit of a vision thing, but, you know, they can see pretty well most of the time. But they also experience everything through their whiskers and the feel of it, airflow against them, as well as smell and hearing. So a lot of that might be this cat really, you know, being the traditional curious cat really, first of all, um, really is really likes you back, and secondly, wants to know you better. But that's all it takes for a cat. Now, hey Tom, if you were if that was a dog, what do you think would be happening? He'd be in your lap. He would, yeah. It'd probably be yeah, licking probably. my face, yeah. Yeah, or, ready, or licking your face or yeah. rolling over for you to pet him on the belly. For a cat, getting that close to you and just staring is really a sign of affection. Oh, okay. They don't require necessarily petting or any other interaction. If you say some nice things to him, that'll be probably as much as he wants to get back. But it's a really good sign. You must be... Um, you must have a way with cats then. Uh, well, I don't know, but I, I, <laughs> I mean, it is kind of nice. One. It is kind of nice, uh, but I don't know if I'm right to be. Uh, I'm all, uh, any interaction with cats. I'm uh, in my mind is kind of colored by suspicion that uh, that that you want something. <laughs> Dogs, I I just assume it's uh, you know it's it's uh, it's it's love. It's affection. It's yeah. <laughs> you know, it is for cats, too, though. I mean, listen, the one thing that I can stereotype easily with dogs and cat owners is their absolute irrefutable defense of that bond between them and their animal. And, you know, cats are the number one pet in the United States. They outnumber dogs by a few tens of thousands. And it's really kind of amazing. That bond is so strong between people and cats. There's no way that any of us can refute that there's actual love between the two species. So I think, yeah, you're right. Cats probably want something, but it can be as much affection and attention as it would be for a dog. Now, this brings me to another uh, topic, you know, behavior. Um, the other thing that makes me nervous when that cat gets up on my lap and gets in my face, which is kind of cute, is that my sister has warned me that, uh, that he likes to urinate. You oh! Know, so I'm always so, how do you, can, can we, is there a warning sign? Oh my gosh, okay. Well, that's an interesting thing. I, we should get your sister on the line because we should, there's, yeah. a, <laughs> there's a lot of different um, issues going on there when a cat will inappropriately urinate. And I'll tell you, after six years um, with uh, the radius of the animal house, that's probably the number one question 
that comes up with cat behavior all the time. And, you know, when a cat inappropriately does that, it's usually because that animal is very stressed for some reason, whether it's another cat in the household like we were talking about before or a cat outside that's prowling around that's getting the the inside cat stressed or a bird that he can't reach because obviously he's inside. That can really be due to stress. So it's kind of interesting. I It's really rare for a cat to just do that um, near a person, though. Mm. So that's I'd want to know more what's going on. That's never been an accidental issue with you and that cat, though, has it? Uh, uh, No, it hasn't happened. Okay, good. good. (laughs) That's that's good. And I I do, you know, I do enjoy interacting with this cat, so it's it's good. Uh, So I'll 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 take it as a sign of sign of affection then next time he. Yeah, it's affection. Yeah, hopefully the other issue won't happen. Yeah, yeah. Because that would not be a sign of affection. It would not be. No, I would not take it as such either. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about dogs and cats, uh, perhaps uh, fit in uh, your animal if it's not a dog or cat. Uh, our guest for the hour is veterinarian Gary Weitzman. He's president and CEO of the San Diego Humane Society and SPCA. He's author of some fun books from National Geographic, including How to Speak Cat and How to Speak Dog, also Everything Dogs. And we're answering your uh, questions, maybe a comment as well. Tell us about uh, your uh, animal. Um, and uh, we'd love to see a picture as well on our Facebook uh, page. We are online as well. You can uh, join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. We have a couple of uh, questions and comments from Hillary and Logan. We'll get to those after the break. Uh, and you can join us on Twitter as uh, as well. Talking dogs and cats and uh, other pets. We love them, but sometimes they're baffling, and uh, maybe they're saying the same thing about us. Dr. Weitzman is helping us to communicate with our our pets. Later in the hour, we'll talk uh, about uh, an effort at uh, San Diego Humane Society called Getting to Zero. That's a comprehensive plan to save the life of every healthy and treatable animal in the San Diego Animal Welfare Coalition shelters. I want to talk about some experience Dr. Weitzman had with the uh, Washington Animal Rescue League, uh, uh, serving there as a national resource for disaster and puppy mill rescues. Uh, That and more coming up following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Oyster Ridge Music Festival, July 24th through 26th, just over the state line in Kemmer, featuring live music and workshops, home of the Wyoming Flat Pick and Finger Pick Guitar Championships. Information at OysterRidgeMusicFestival.com. When Jimmy Wales started Wikipedia, it was manageable. In the early days, I used to read every single edit. Wow. As they came in, I would click and see what someone had done. Someone in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Edited. Spanish language. Someone United United States. United Kingdom. Edited. Of Monsters and Men. That someone only lasted for a very edited. short period of time. It got very fast. It was impossible to keep up with everything. Channeling chaos into collaboration. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We love our dogs and cats, but their behavior can be baffling. And uh, today our guest is veterinarian Gary Weitzman, president and CEO of the San Diego Humane Society and SPCA's author of uh, some fun books from National Geographic, How to Speak Cat, How to Speak Dog, and Everything Dogs. We're answering your dog and cat questions on the program uh, today. We'll get into talking about an effort in San Diego called Getting to Zero, a comprehensive plan to save the life of every healthy and treatable animal in the San Diego Animal Welfare Coalition shelters. And we're answering your questions. So love to get yours in. Uh, you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter as well, at Utah Public Radio. Post a picture of your uh, animal on our Facebook page. Love to love to see your dog or cat or, or, or whoever it might be, whatever breed it might be. Uh, here is uh, an email uh, from uh, Hillary in uh, Logan. She says, uh, hi, Tom, I'm looking forward to hearing about how to talk to my cat on Access Utah today. And by sheer coincidence, a friend just shared a link to Music for Cats uh, with me, she says. And so she uh, gives the link. Uh, we, we went there, Hillary, and uh, we had to pay some money to get that. So, But we did link over to... Uh, Another listener suggested we go to an NPR story. This was on Weekend Edition with uh, Scott Simon. And uh, and he had a guest on which uh, talked about music for cats. And so we do have some of that music 
so shortly here we'll hear some of that music and then we'll hear the rest of Hillary's question. Um, NPR uh, on that piece uh, spoke with University of Maryland music professor David Tai about the music he composed for Cats and uh, that uh, clip's coming from uh, from uh, NPR. So uh, we are fielding a call right uh, now. So, so before we go to that music, let me get in uh, Hillary's uh, second question. Uh, she says, my cat makes uh, his bird call sound to insects and only recently started doing it for birds. He's seven years old. Is it typical for a cat to vocalize to uh, insects? Huh. That's a, well, I have to tell you, Tom, that's the first question like that I've ever had. I, probably because it's the first cat that I've heard that actually vocalizes to insects. Um, it's not typical at all. As a matter of fact, it's very unusual for a cat to make any kind of noise. I think what probably Hillary's talking about is some kind of a trilling noise, and that's just an excitement uh, sound from cats. So it's almost like an audible purr. I mean, purrs you can hear anyway, but it's, it's they're kind of quiet. You've got to listen really closely to it. But when a cat does that trilling sound, if that's what Hillary's talking about, that's really pure excitement. And it's really unusual because, as we all know, cats will, you know, dive after an insect for the most part. They'll pounce on it like it's prey. And they're really stealth hunters. So for a cat to make noise like that when he or she's doing it is kind of ruining the hunt, so to speak. So it's really unusual. That sounds very interesting that this cat is actually vocalizing to insects when she sees him. Uh, That's interesting, yeah, because it does... It does ruin the hunt, right? You're you're announcing you're, you're announcing you're, your yeah, presence. You're letting the wolf cat out of the bag, so to speak, yeah. uh, during the hunt. But yeah, they don't normally do it. And as we were talking about before, most of the time cats don't vocalize to anything but humans. Uh, so this is interesting as well. Uh, Hillary says her cat is seven years old. He's only recently started doing this with birds. It, it you know it indicates that animals pick up behaviors as they go along. Is that? Uh, you know, the, here's the thing about email, I'm not getting all the details, so that would probably take an hour to do that. But I wonder if, if, if her cat is an indoor cat and he's looking at birds out through the glass, which can lead to some frustration in cats because there's no way to ever, you know, win that hunt, then it's actually very nice that, that the cat is only making vocalization sounds. But it may not be just pure excitement. That's part of it. But it could be some frustration as well. So what we usually recommend is if a cat's always staring at a bird outside on a tree outside the window, give that cat something to pounce on sometime around the same time that he's looking at that bird. So whether it's you know a stuffed mouse or it's one of those games where you have a feather on the end of a pole, something like that for that cat to get rid of that excess energy. But for this cat, you know, all animals have their own personalities and are individual. For the individuals, for this cat, that's really um, probably an overwhelming <laughs> excitement um, sound that he's making. It sounds like it's very appropriate, though, and, and really kind of sweet. It does sound, yeah. yeah. So, Hillary, it sounds like you have an interesting uh, uh, cat there. So, uh, Yeah. Um, I, I experienced uh, my uh, my brothers uh, went to uh, to college in central Utah, and Ephraim, it's at Snow College. I'd go and visit them every once in a while. And there was a rooster uh, there that we we kind of got had an affinity for. We never met the rooster. But the, the funny thing about this rooster was that he would crow about noon, and so we noon. Oh, so we okay. we pictured we pictured this rooster as kind of a lazy rooster. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know because you think of roosters crowing in the early morning. Of course, yeah, when the sun comes up. When the sun comes up, uh, so I don't know that that made me think of variability among. You know, indiv- oh, yeah. individual you know, animals, you know, have their own personalities. Heavens, though, we're not the only species that gets things wrong occasionally. <laughs> so this rooster definitely, I don't think he sleeps in necessarily, but he really has his clock set wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that's um, that's very atypical. Roosters really do crow with the sun coming up. It's just the, the break of day. Um, it Was it particularly cloudy all the time out there? <laughs> I, think, I think it was variable weather, different kinds of weather. Yeah, I have yeah, to I have no. to say that we were sleeping in, and so it was unusual for us to be awakened by this rooster, you know, crowing at noon, crowing at noon, crowing at noon. Uh, but but we we kind of had an affection for this. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of endearing. But, you know, actually, having said that they will start doing that early morning, it's not the only time that roosters will crow. So is it possible that maybe you guys overslept the early morning Yes, we, we, it's, very li- it's very likely. Yes, okay. very likely. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the, this pro- the rooster is probably doing its job. But yes, we just, I think we slept so. Yeah, it. maybe so. Okay. 
All right. In the meantime, let's hear some of this uh, cat music, uh, music for cats. In fact, there's a website, Music for Cats, and then we'll hear the rest of Hillary's uh, question about how her cat is responding to this. This kind of music. David Tai is the composer behind this piece of music and joins us in our studios. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. We'd like to hear a little more of your music, and, and let's suggest your composition, Spooks Diddy. So there's a little uh, a sample of uh, music for cats, and then they had that piece. You can find that at uh, NPR.org. By the way, Hillary has emailed us in some free samples, but uh, you heard a little sample right there. So uh, let me uh, let me find the rest of Hillary's uh, question. So she said uh, a friend uh, shared a link to music for cats, and there's some samples. We heard one of them right there. She said, they sound nice to me, but my cat was more interested in looking out the window. And yet whenever I sing or whistle, he comes running and purring. Yeah. Either, either to rub on my legs or sit in my lap. Also, when he was little, my last public radio station was playing some ear-grating classical music, and he arched his back, flattened his ears back, and fluffed his tail, endearing himself to me for eternity because I felt vindicated in having the human equivalent reaction to that particular song. That's, that's Hillary. Oh, uh, that is funny. So I wonder, the first, the first part of that question, uh, the, this music for cats, but Hillary's cat didn't seem to respond to, to the music. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, there's there's something called in a dog's ear that probably came out about oh, maybe five years ago, maybe even longer. And similarly, it was actually sounds that dogs would really respond to. And a lot of us in in um, animal shelters started to use it, uh, you know, to try to make dogs calm and decrease stress. That's the most important thing you can do for animals. And the same thing is has come out, obviously, for cats as well. And actually, you know, it's a combination of frequencies that they can hear that are pleasant and not jarring, because we all have those ranges, and theirs are much broader and higher than ours. And the second thing is, you know, what struck me with the Scott Simon piece was that those sounds very much either sound like a cat or they sound like a human communicating or making sounds toward a cat. You know, we call it communication, but heaven knows what the cats are thinking when we, when we make those noises. But it sounded like a human actually trying to call a cat. So when Hillary says that, you know, she, her cat comes running with that whistle, those sounds mean a lot. But sometimes it's because they're coming from us. But, I mean, some animals hear it and respond to it. Some don't. And there was something recently that came out a few years ago. It's still going on. It's called Dog TV. There's nothing called Cat TV yet. But Dog TV actually was not just sound, but a lot of sound, but images actually that dogs would respond to, you know, waiting in the grass or grass waving, other animals playing, that sort of thing. But definitely, like us, not universal. It doesn't appeal to everybody. So I guess Hillary's cat's not so interested in the music, right. at least not, not classical music yeah. anyway. Yeah, that, that particular piece, I guess, uh, set her cat off, and it, Hillary agreed with that that assessment. Uh, huh. So so images, do, do cats respond to images? Or just oh, sure, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially at night when we can't see a single thing that they're actually responding to. Their night vision is fantastic, as we all know. Their peripheral vision is not so good, but it's it's not that bad. You know, they're, they have much flatter faces, but it's probably not as good as ours. But they do respond to different images and, and different things. And, you know, look at this. We... You know, the traditional cat game. That Well, let's take the laser pointer. Not my favorite cat game, but it is something that a lot of people use. And it's okay to use as long as you don't shine it in anybody's eyes and as long as you actually give the cat something to, to be rewarded by, by playing with that laser pointer going everywhere. But, you know, if someone took that laser pointer and they actually shot it against the ground so that I could see it darting around, I wouldn't care at all. I'd actually be very bored. But for a cat, it's absolutely the most fascinating, brain-stimulating, wonderful thing on Earth. It's like seeing the Grand Canyon open up before you. But it's very different. They do respond to different things. And dogs do, too, which was the whole you know, genesis of, of dog TV, mm-hmm. trying to get that part of that dog's brain stimulated and, and soothed. And the same thing happens with cats. Do you recommend leaving the radio or television on for your 
for your it dog or cat? On the, it depends on the animal. Um, I think it's not a bad thing at all. First of all, one thing it's very good for, for dogs that are somewhat reactive if you're not at home, and you might hear that from your neighbors, your dog was barking as soon as you left the house, that kind of thing. It's actually not a bad thing to have another noise kind of replace the dead silence that surrounds a house before a car, you know, drives in and, and a door slams and gets uh, your dog all excited. So it's it actually can block out other noises, but also it's not a bad thing. It's kind of the Mozart effect. Now, obviously not in utero, so it's not doing anything there, but it can be very soothing. And animals do respond to, to, to music um, sometimes similarly to us, but it may be a different, you know, different sound than it is for us, but I think it's not a bad thing at all. Same thing for cats. You know, I don't think I would necessarily put, you know, heavy metal on to try to keep your animals calm because it's, that's probably going to be a little bit equivalent to, um, you know, well, captive torture, I suppose, if they can't do anything about changing the station. But it's not a bad idea to leave soft music on with your animals if you're leaving them at home. Or do what I do. I leave the TV on. So one thing it does is it comforts them that it's the same environment that happens when you're there. You know, those of us who are addicted to radio or TV, obviously only NPR, right? right obviously, that, yes. Yes, having that noise on at home means you're home. Having that noise on at home when you're not home can still be comforting to that animal. So it's a combination of sounds and custom that can give them comfort by leaving a TV or radio on. If you just joined us, we're talking with Dr. Gary Weitzman. He's a veterinarian and uh, he's uh, a president and CEO of the San Diego Humane Society and SPCA. He's author of some fun books from National Geographic. Uh, the latest is How to Speak Cat. He's author previously of How to Speak Dog and Everything Dogs. And we're taking your questions about uh, your pet uh, here at upraxcess at gmail.com. Unfortunately, the phone system is not working, so uh, uh, email that, if you would, please, uh, upraxcess at gmail.com. Owen is wondering the best way to cope with losing a great dog he had for 22 years while also bonding with a new puppy he recently adopted. He says he's had trouble accepting the new puppy's differences from his previous dog, and he wonders if Dr. Weissman has any advice for the pet transition. Oh, wow, that's a great question from Owen. I would first of all tell Owen, don't worry, not a bit. It's going to happen whether he wants it or not. Um, you know, having a dog for 22 years, that's extraordinary. The only dog I've ever known that's lived into their 20s have been dachshunds, interestingly enough. So I wonder what kind of dog Owen had. But obviously that kind of a bond, that kind of relationship for 22 years, that's never, ever going to be replaced by anybody. But a new puppy coming in, there's a couple things that go on. First of all, we actually are our own worst enemies. We don't allow ourselves to have the comfort of a new animal, thinking that we're replacing the one that we lost. And, and Tom, I don't know if you've, you've lost an animal, but we all know, I mean, they are family members, absolutely 100% um, part of our hearts. So losing that dog for 22 years, you're not going to really... Owen's going to have trouble getting a new puppy um, and feeling like that that's a replacement. So we have to go through the guilt of replacing the animal. We have to go through the guilt of giving us, uh, ourselves permission to maybe start healing from that morning. And then we have to open up to a completely different, um, different animal who has a different personality, different quirks, different things that we'll fall in love with. But I can guarantee Owen he will fall in love with this new puppy. I can tell you from experience, I had a greyhound that I lost way too young. Her name was Lucy. She was only eight years old, and like a lot of greyhounds, developed bone cancer, and it just went terribly aggressive. And I lost her at eight years old, which I didn't expect. Got a new puppy. Actually, the nurses in my old shelter in Washington, D.C. wouldn't let me not have another pup to go with my dog, <laughs> my other dog, and brought Betty home to me. Well, actually brought her into the clinic, and I was I resisted it. And I'll tell you, for like three months, I wouldn't let my heart open up to this new puppy. But I'll tell you, right now, she, we are inseparable. I can't even imagine life without her. So I would tell Owen, just uh, forgive himself, allow himself to open up to a brand new personality and a new animal. And I guarantee he'll be in love with this puppy. Like, well, you know, it takes a while with pups. You have to get through all that puppy stage where you want to kill them at the same time as loving them. But um, I guarantee he will fall in love with this, this pup, yeah. uh, not to worry at all. Uh, by, by the way, I understand that Owen's, uh, Owen's dog, the previous dog was a Chihuahua. Chihuahua, yeah. Small yeah. dogs live a long time, but 22, that's still pretty extraordinary yeah. for a Chihuahua. I don't think I've ever known one to, to live that long. 
let's take another break. When we come back, more with uh, Dr. Weitzman. He is uh, author of uh, some books from National Geographic, How to Speak Cat, How to Speak Dog, and Everything Dogs. And he can answer your question, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. You can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio, and you can join us on Facebook as well, where you can uh, post a picture of your pet. Love to see that. More following the break. What was the happiest moment in your life and why? How do you want to be remembered? Has your life been different than what you might have imagined? What are your dreams for me? These are questions you can ask a loved one, a friend, or someone who's made a difference in your life when you join Utah Public Radio in Vernal for the Uinta Basin StoryCorps project throughout the month of July. Registration information is available at upr.org. Uinta Basin StoryCorps. Support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible by our members and VTV Channel 6, serving the Uinta Basin with local television, video production services, and cable TV and cinema advertising. Your life in HD information is at vtvchannel6.com. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page, or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Learning how to uh, pick up our pet's communication can be baffling, but uh, we have with us Dr. Gary Weitzman. He's a veterinarian and president and CEO of the San Diego Humane Society and SPCA. He's written some books. They're out from National Geographic, How to Speak Cat, How to Speak Dog, and Everything Dogs. And uh, if you have a question or comment, like to tell us about your pet or ask a question about your pet, we'd love to uh, get that. You can email me at uh, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. And uh, Dr. Weitzman on with us for another 10 minutes. Uh, here's a question in from Carol in uh, Logan. She says, I adopted a female five-year-old uh, Kelfie, Kelfie Kelpie, rather, is the name, uh, who was the most incredible companion. Literally, her only behavior flaw was an initial rush growl, uh, quote-unquote snit, with most dogs that she would encounter on the trail. It would only last a few seconds, not authentically aggressive. She had over 10 dog buddies that I would sit dog sit often, and all of those relationships started with the same snit behavior. Often she would uh, drop down into a herding posture first. I learned to proactively leash her and put her on a sit with a treat when another dog passed by, but it remained as a lifelong behavior. She's wondering what causes that behavior. Oh, okay. Well, for Carol, that's um, simply because her dog is a herding dog. Um, a Kelpie is an Australian sheepdog, and basically that's a really, really common herding move that her dog was doing. So her dog was doing everything exactly right. Did she say that her dog was was um, would get into dog fights as well? Uh, apparently, uh, she didn't mention that. She said it's, okay, it's just that initial uh, rush growl snit. That's yeah, that's actually very, very common. That's exactly what uh, Kelpie would do out in the. Um, sheep areas of New Zealand and Australia. So her dog was very, very normal. That's actually really good. That's an unusual breed to have. That's very cool, actually. But her dog was doing exactly what that dog was supposed to do. And uh, apparently she had uh, got along well with, with, with the other dogs. Oh, excellent. Dog okay, buddies, excellent. right? So it's yeah, just that, that yeah. initial behavior. So that, that's just part of, that's part of that breed. It's exactly part of that breed. That, breed, that dog was doing exactly what that dog was bred to do and acting completely normally for, for Carol. So I think she had a good dog. Hopefully she still does. Uh, well, it's in past tense. It sounds like Carol has lost uh, this, uh, okay. this dog. But, uh, so um, uh, thanks for that, uh, Carol. Thanks for telling us about, you, about, your, about your dog. She needed to get some sheep. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's, yeah, that that's, would have made that dog very happy. And actually, that's a really good point. You know, we were talking earlier about cats and, unfortunately, some of the behaviors that they will do because they get frustrated or, or anxious. For dogs, it really is because a lot of these animals that are completely we, – we've created all of these breeds, and a lot of them actually don't have the jobs that they were created to do. So Kelpies or Australian Sheepdogs or German Shepherds, a lot of the issues that we see really are because we don't give them the jobs that we actually um, – we actually bred them genetically 
great to do. So it's actually nice that her dog was pretty well well um, adjusted in spite of it. One of your uh, you have uh, five dog behaviors to watch, five cat behaviors to watch. Uh, something that uh, that was sent to me. I noticed a tail chasing. What if you talk a little bit about that? Uh, this is uh, perhaps an indication your dog's not getting enough exercise. Well, it can be. It can be a sign of some frustration or, you know, we like to say our dogs are neurotic when they're doing things that we can't quite understand. But, but yeah, dogs that constantly do that, it's, it's a problem. Dogs that do it occasionally, it's, it's a wonderful and enjoyable thing to watch because they're just, you know, they just make us laugh. But the dogs that do it all the time may be really obsessed with it and may be really frustrated, and that's something to watch out for. So one of the biggest cures that you can do for a dog or a cat is to make sure that their lives are enriched. And for dogs, it's enriched by exercise, going out to dog parks if your dog gets along in a dog park, or hikes, or or playing frisbee with you, whatever, but getting some of that energy out. And for cats, if you, we you know we love cats to stay indoors where they're nice and safe. It's getting all, it's making the indoors really seem like Disney World. You know, all the toys, all the vertical places for them to run up and and scratch and hide and jump, all those things. But just to make that world an enriched one for both of them, and a lot of the behavior problems that we see go away once you do that. That's interesting. You're matching up the or, or trying to find outlets for the behaviors that we have bred into these these breeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we do it over and over again. I mean, there's probably you know, there's got to be easily uh, three to four hundred different dog breeds. And for cats, we don't see them as often because by far the majority of our cats are domestic short-haired cats. But if you go back and you look through all the breeds of cats, there's some very, very unique behaviors that happen in all of them. And a lot of them are based on how they physically have turned out because of how we bred them. I'm thinking of a, a kind of a funny couple of scenes from the the movie Funny Farm. Have you ever saw that Chevy Chase movie? So his first dog he gets, they move out to the country, going to have this idyllic life. He gets a dog um, who uh, who's very active. He says, look at him go, and, and the dog just runs away and never sees him again. So he wants to get a little more oh, sedate no. animal next time. And so he goes to the other extreme. This dog is so lazy that he has to actually you know, get the tongs and take the dog's uh, tail out of the fire. And all the dog does is just sit around. That that kind of kind of goes to to your point. You, you probably ought to match up what you want to do with that <laughs> yeah. with that dog with with what that uh, dog is bred to do. Actually, now I want to see that movie. I, I never have actually, but um, no, that really does because that's what will help you do in an animal shelter. First of all, once you adopt from a shelter, you've actually had a, you've adopted two things. You've adopted an animal, but you've also adopted an organization. Hopefully, that will support you in keeping that animal in your home. But the really most important thing is actually having a conversation about what kind of animal best suits your life and your family's life, and what what do you want to do? Do you want to go out for a hike every day, or do you want to do it every weekend? Do you want to go for car rides, all of those things are hopefully behaviors that we can help you with in an animal shelter. I want to just have about four minutes left. I do want to get to this effort, laudable effort, sounds like very ambitious, getting to zero. Tell me about this. Thank you. Um, You know, it's something that we're aspiring to all across the country. We've got three to four million, hopefully closer to 3 million now, dogs and cats that are being euthanized around the United States because of not being able to get into homes. And here in San Diego, at least, we are trying to, and will by July 1st, uh, succeed in making sure that every treatable and healthy animal meaning every animal that's adoptable can get into a home and not be euthanized. And we're down to uh, probably uh, the last three months of having that be an issue here in San Diego. Once that happens, we're going to reach out to areas that have more animals that need to be uh, rehomed that aren't finding adopters in their own areas. And, you know, like um, Southern California, farther north from us, into L.A. County, which has a lot of animals that aren't quite making it into homes. But right now, we've got um, three months till July 1st, and after July 1st, no adoptable animal in San Diego County will be euthanized. And that's really something to celebrate. That, that is. What are some of the methods you're, you're using? Well, one of the most important ones is we've actually, um, you know, one of the things I talked about earlier was having feral cat colonies and lots of kittens who vocalize with each other, but the adults don't. For us, it's those kittens being lost in an, in an area because they can't get into homes. That's the, one of the most tragic things. So a few years ago, we opened up a kitten nursery here in San Diego Humane Society, and it's open 24 hours a day starting um, actually the 15th of March, goes until about December 1st uh, during kitten season. We probably have about 2,000 kittens that are brought to us from all 
all over the county that we actually raise in that nursery and we socialize them and get them into homes and they every single one of them mixed into a home. So that's one of the most important ways to get to zero uh, euthanasia. Otherwise, those animals would have been would have been lost, and that would have been really really tragic. Mm. Well, congratulations on that. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left. We do have this email that just came in. I want to get this in. This is from Chris, uh, who says, I have an eight-month-old cat that I got when he was uh, six to eight weeks, uh, week old stray. The odd thing to me is that he hates to be outside during the day. He loves to spend the night outside, though. Cats are supposed to supposedly nocturnal, but I've never met one quite like this. It might have something to do with the fact that he's uh, home alone during the day, so he just sleeps. But it seems to me he'd uh, have a lot more stimulation if he went out. Is it uh, as weird as I think that he dislikes the daylight, or is this a, a vampire cat? Oh, that's a, it's a, that's an interesting question. That's a completely normal cat. And most cats, actually, if they really want to be outside, if you ask them their choice, they would much prefer to be outside at night. And, uh, you know, obviously, Chris hit it on the head. Um, cats are nocturnal, and nighttime is when they're going to go hunting. Nighttime is when they're going to go playing and stalking and prowling. And, uh, you know, they're... There's a reason we call them cat burglars. Uh, they're outside at night. So very normal cat to do that. Of course, you know, we'd like them to stay in at night because it's the most dangerous for them at night. Cat mm-hmm. fights and, you know, things that they can't see, things that go bump in the night. It's a little more dangerous for them at night. But if he has to have an outdoor cat, very normal for that cat to want to go outside. I, all I would say to Chris is kind of be careful about it and see if he can wrangle that cat to stay in once he goes to bed so that he can actually keep that cat safe. And uh, Chris goes on to say, by the way, he does the trilling thing at both birds and insects while in the house, but he kills plenty of rodents at night, which is why I got him. Uh, So he must be quieter when hunting for real. I would hope so. (laughs) Otherwise, he would be very (laughs) successful. It's like blowing a whistle as you're about to, to, to pounce on something. So that's interesting. So now we have two trilling cats in Utah. Right. I'm going to have to do some investigation on this. That's very nice. <laughs> might, might be unique to Utah. By the way, Hillary uh, wrote back in. She says, it turns out this trilling is not unusual. Uh, it is a chatter to insects and birds. Mother Nature Network has a nice little article with video sound samples. She gives that. We'll put that on our, on our oh, website. Oh, that's good. That's good. So uh, in the meantime, uh, Dr. Weitzman, uh, Gary Weitzman's author of uh, some fun books. Uh, check those out from National Geographic, How to Speak Cat, How to Speak Dog, and Everything Dogs. And he's president and CEO of uh, San Diego uh, Humane Society and SPCA. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. A total pleasure, Tom, talking to you. Uh, really love, love being on. Okay, thank you. And uh, tune in, of course, tomorrow for Access Utah. In the meantime, for today, thank you. And uh, stay tuned. Much more coming up. Support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible by our members and the Basin Nickel Ads, a community resource for classified and display advertising, direct mailed to every home in the Uinta Basin, including obituaries and birth announcements. Information can be found through the Basin Nickel phone app. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. With Pioneer Days looming, let's explore a bit of our local heritage. Following several days of cold and snowy weather in early May, my friend and USU graduate student Ian Keller and I approached the Mormon Handcart Outpost near Evanston, Wyoming, on Desert Land and Livestock Company land. We braved the elements to deliver a seminar to eight missionary couples on Mormon pioneer use of wild plants as they struggled towards the promised land of Salt Lake Valley. Ian's graduate work encompasses this topic Some of what follows is from his good work, combined with others later mentioned. And we must not overlook the origins of this knowledge, which came from the native peoples, acquired through thousands of years of trial and error. I must add that following our seminar, we feasted on a variety of sumptuous foods the missionaries had prepared from pioneer recipes. I'll begin with the remarkable plant, Big Sagebrush, or Artemisia tridentata, which was their constant companion for much of the journey. Medicinal uses included treatment for headache, diarrhea, sore throat, vomiting, and even bullet wounds. Tea made from the leaves was used for hair tonic and poultice for bee stings. Brigham Young advised gathering and drying it for winter medicinal purposes. From a pioneer journal, we washed our hair in sage tea. Sage tea is good to cure night sweats. And from Phil Robinson, 1883, someday perhaps a fortune will be made of it. But at present, its chief value seems to be as a moral discipline to the settler and as cover for the sage hen. Another plant that rarely gets its due, the common dandelion. 
for dandelion salad, gather the tender young plants of the dandelion. Wash and cut up into a salad. Serve with dressing, oil, or just salt and pepper. And that's Eileen Kingsbury. And from Larry Sagers, USU Extension Horticultural Specialist in the Thanksgiving Point office, thistles that we now curse were once highly prized by the pioneers. One early pioneer wrote, I used to eat thistle stalks until my stomach would be as full as a cow's. The young leaves, the stinging nettles, were also used as greens. The cooking destroyed the irritating parts that affect the skin. Camas bulbs, for which Camas, Utah, was named, were also used for food. The bulbs were eaten, or a crude molasses was made from the boiling the bulbs. Unfortunately, if too many of the bulbs were consumed, they could cause severe illness. The bulbs also grow in proximity with death camas, so this particular plant involves certain risks to the user. The pioneers also used greasewood, sprouts, and other plants to supplement their meager diet. Gooseberries, strawberries, raspberries, and currants grew in the mountains and were highly prized. Choke cherries were favorites for preserves and jellies. Additional excellent resources on this topic. A recent book by Brock Cheney, Plain but Wholesome, Foodways of Mormon Pioneers. This is a delightful book with many pioneer plant stories and recipes as is Dr. Wesley P. Larson's Field Folio of Indians and Pioneer Medicinal Plants. Perhaps your Pioneer Day's activities will include preparing a recipe from one of these sources to garnish your picnic. And please include the plants which garnished our pioneers with flavor, if not survival, during their epic trek. This has been Jack Green reading from Wild About Utah. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. My father believed any man that needed a vacation should get a different job. For him, those 110 acres was the whole world. He needed nothing else. Share your story at the StoryCorps mobile recording booth in Vernal during the month of July. We are taking reservations online at upr.org or you can call 1-800-850-4406. This summer, we're featuring great music inspired by distinctive American places. The next stop on PT's summer road trip was a happy retreat for Dvorak in the summer of 1893. We'll visit Spillville, Iowa, and hear Dvorak's American Quartet. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next Performance Today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Coming up next is the TED Radio Hour from NPR, followed by performance today at 11 o'clock. The time now, 10 o'clock. 